For the rest of us, we are in the book of Colossians, a favorite of many, certainly a favorite of mine. And we're going to start in the beginning, Colossians chapter 1. If you're looking in your Bibles, um, you have the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. And then go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. Paul, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you, to us, your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Um, One of the biggest mistakes I see beginning writers make is they, they try to start with the beginning. They study a passage, especially in seminary I saw this. You read a scripture passage, you try to write a sermon, and you're just staring at a blank page trying to figure out how to introduce what you're, you know, how to write your introduction, what to start with. Fortunately, uh, we had good professors who would just ask us this question. How can you introduce what you're saying if you don't know what you're about to say? How can you write an introduction if you don't know what you're introducing? The same principle applies in a lot of Paul's letters. When you read an introduction, it's almost like a table of contents. You're, you're, it's almost like you're, you're reading a mini version of everything that's coming after. So it's jam-packed. It's not about one thing. It's about all the things. So um, thank you, Rob, for allowing me to preach this. Um, and, and in order to understand everything that comes after Colossians 1 through 4, we really have to understand this beginning passage. So we need some background info. Uh, This letter to the Colossians comes to us from Paul and Timothy. We read that. But Paul never visited the city of Colossae. 
So why did he write to them? Well, we read about it actually in verses 5 through 7. Paul writes, of this hope, he's talking about the hope, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Epaphras, which is another way of writing Epaphroditus, if you've ever run across that name elsewhere in scripture, he grew up in Colossae. He probably heard the good news from, from Paul while he was preaching in Ephesus. And then Epaphras returned back home to Colossae and started preaching the gospel. And that was sort of the seed and the watering to grow the Colossian church. So Epaphras probably, if he didn't plant it, he had a big hand in planting And while he was talking to Paul, Epaphras probably would have shared some of the idols, some of the competing beliefs that were circling around Colossians. Things like the worship of angels. In Colossae, uh, some of the gurus and mystics and teachers were teaching that in order to ward off evil spirits, you needed angels guarding you. I'm so glad we don't have that anymore. This idea of guardian angels. I'm so glad we've evolved past that. That's that's good for us, right? And and in order to ward off these evil spirits, evil things happening to you, they would worship angels, not just Christ. You can understand why Colossians is so Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. One of the other things, among many, is the belief that certain practices, certain things we would do, would also ward off evil spirits. Things like strict strict observance of the Sabbath and eating certain foods but not eating certain foods. This is part of what Paul calls asceticism throughout the book of Colossians, especially chapter 2. Those are just two things. We're going to explore the rest as we go throughout the book. But what Paul tells the Colossian church, this is where we zero in, is that Christ is above those things. Christ is above anything we would do having to do with religion. Christ is above the angels. Christ is above the demons. Christ is above all. And so this morning as we focus on Colossians chapter 1, this, this truth that Christ is above all applies in Colossae. It applies in Nigeria, in Russia, in China, in Brazil, and in Stewart, Florida, United States. And so, we're going to see specifically in these opening verses how Christ is above darkness. Christ is above Satan and his schemes. He is above the sin in the world. He is above the sin in our hearts. And because he is, we're going to look at three things. Three things we must do if we are in Christ. And that is, number one, hold fast to your hope. Hold fast to your hope. Number two, work hard in your walk. And number three, rejoice in your Redeemer. So, number one, hold fast to your hope. You can see all throughout Paul's writings that he has really three attributes that jump to the fore. Faith, love, and hope. Famously, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, That though these three abide, there's one that is the greatest, right? Love. Love is the greatest. Nobody would disagree. But look what he writes in our passage this morning. In verses 3 through 5. He says, 
We always, in verse 3, thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. But this is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Love may be the greatest, but hope is the foundation. It's what fuels faith and love. And this hope comes to us through the word. Verse 5 again, but this time, the whole verse. He writes, Because of the love laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Gospel. Now, what exactly is the hope laid up for us in heaven that we hear and read about in God's word? You see it in Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to skip ahead. Colossians chapter 3. He writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What is your hope, Christian? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him, with Christ in glory. According to Paul, according to scripture, what is your hope? is Christ. Commentators have have many opinions on what our hope in heaven is going to be. Maybe it's a world without sin. That sounds nice. Maybe it's our resurrection bodies. That should fill us with hope, right? Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians. Maybe it's everlasting life instead of everlasting death. But I think we're missing the point. So let me ask you, Christian, as we often sing, right? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. That's why we sing that. What do we look to? Those of you whose souls are afflicted, we look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Mercy is found in him alone. Jesus is the prize, the inheritance, the reward. Everything else is a result. Everything else is a result of being in Christ. Imagine a fiancé. Imagine a fiancé goes in for pastoral counseling, and when the pastor asks him, why do you want to marry this person? He says, well, I just got tired of being lonely. And two incomes are better than one. And I'd like biological children one day, and You don't need a seminary degree to know that that marriage isn't going to last very long because we're missing the point. Yes, those things do happen, but they are a result of the main purpose, the main point. The person is the price. And if, if we are part of the church primarily to improve our parenting, we're missing the point. If we're if we come to worship primarily because we are discouraged and we need a pick-me-up, that might happen, but we're missing the point. The reason God improves our parenting, fixes our marriages, provides financially, encourages us spiritually, is so that we would hold fast to our hope, not make an idol out of the result. Our call, 
our enablement. The power of the gospel is that we have a sure and steady anchor. We have Jesus Christ. We are in him. When we face the darkness of this world, we sometimes try to combat it with our own power and our strategies. Even in our best moments, we try to sort of Christian humanism our problems. We say, well, I'm not going to just fight it with my own wisdom. I'll fight it with faith. I'll just have more faith. I'll just love others harder and better. You'll see. I'll sacrifice more than all of them. It's not our faith that can defeat the darkness of this world. It's not your love that defeats the darkness of this world. Our faith and our love are a result of our hope, which is Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. He defeats the darkness. He is the light. And he is the one who makes us, his church, the light of the world. As the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 10, he writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For, why? How would you finish that? For it yields the best results? It makes the most logical sense. No, the author of Hebrews writes, for he who promised is faithful. Your promises, your hope are anchored in a person, not a strategy, not a theology, not a certain seminary, not a certain even denomination. Your anchor is, ho- is, is in a person. Hold fast to your hope, Christian, Jesus Christ. When you are faced with other belief systems, when you are faced with the really hard situations of life, Your faith, your love, your strength will not be enough. Which is why Paul thanks God that they heard of their faith and their love because of their hope. Jesus is our hope. And he stands above all other hopes. Amen? Now, that's a really spiritually sounding phrase, right? Jesus is our hope. Hope in him alone. That's really spiritually sounding, right? Well, what does it actually mean? Like, how, how do you actually make Christ your hope? What does it look like to do that? Well, it, it changes everything. The way you talk, think, spend money, use your time. It's what the Israelites called your walk. Walking with the Lord is actually a, a Jewish Old Testament thing. And it encompassed everything. Another way of saying that is, there's nothing that is not included in walking. It's not just your feet. It's everything you do. So what does it look like to hold fast to your hope? It means you work hard in your walk. So number two, we work, as we hold fast to our hope, we work hard in our walk. Wait, pastor, didn't you just tell me not to work hard? Didn't you just tell me it's not about what I do? Yes, correct. Good job listening. But for the Christian, It's not, should I work at these things, but rather, which comes first? My working or God's gift? Which one comes first? And the beauty of the gospel, we see in verses 9 to 10, Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard of their faith and their love because of the hope in Jesus, he writes in verse 9, Because from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
Sometimes it's important to realize what an author is not saying as much as what he is saying. Paul is not saying, get to work so that you can please God and God will be happy with you. Make yourself worthy. On the contrary, he says, we're praying that God would give you knowledge of him and wisdom so that you would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord because you cannot do it on your own. And look what happens at the end of verse 10. As you are filled with the knowledge of God's will, you are enabled to live in a way that pleases God. And as you live in a way that pleases God, what else happens? You bear fruit and you increase in the knowledge of God. I'm doing this on purpose. It's, it's, it's the circle of spirituality. It's beautiful. As you are filled with the knowledge of God, what happens? You increase in the knowledge of God. As you are filled with wisdom, you bear fruit. And as you bear fruit, you are filled with wisdom. And as you are filled with wisdom, you bear fruit. I could keep going. That's how circles work. It just, it's beautiful. It's not which one. It's not which one should I doing. The answer is both. The question is which one comes first. Paul is clear. I'm asking so that you would be filled, that you would be filled so that you would walk. You cannot walk unless you are filled. The walking does not come first. The filling does. God's grace, God's provision, God's enablement, God's power comes first. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. I could not do it on my own. It's almost like everything else we do. Uh, think about language, whether it's uh, Spanish or Chinese or music. And yes, music is a language. Someone teaches you the music. That's sort of the gift, the grace, what Paul calls being filled. But if someone teaches you and you never use it, you're missing the point, right? If, if you learn music and you never sing, then what was the point, right? But then, as you use it, what happens? As you read music, as you play an instrument, what happens? You increase in knowledge. You get better. And what happens as you get better? You want to play more, don't you? You want to sing more. You want to learn even more. And what happens as you learn even more? You want to play more. Again, it's a circle. I could keep on going. It's beautiful. That's why you work hard in your walk, not to earn God's favor, but because he has given you everything you need to continue to increase in those things. It's the gift of God that enables our working. Absolutely. And also our working develops God's grace in us. When you hear this command, it's really easy to think, I have to make myself worthy, right? Do these things so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Christian, you're commanded to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You are so unworthy. But thank, thanks be to God for the grace, right? You're so unworthy, but God's grace. That's actually not the point of this. The, the point of this is not, okay, well, I have, to show, I have to show God that his choice to save me was the right one. He made a good choice. I have to show Jesus that his sacrifice on the cross wasn't in vain. That's, that's earning. That's, that's salvation by works. just looks a little different. That is not, I repeat, not what Paul is saying. In fact, the point Paul is making is much sweeter and more beautiful. 
the truth of the gospel is that God has equipped you with everything you need to live your life in a manner worthy of Jesus. He gives you the knowledge. He gives you the wisdom. And as you live your life in Jesus, he increases that knowledge and that wisdom. So the question is this. What else are you doing or using to make yourself feel worthy? That's the question for us this morning. What are you substituting in place of the gospel? And we all do it to varying degrees at varying times. The Colossians were using strict religious practices, asceticism. That's how they measured their worth. How much were they sacrificing? How much were they depriving themselves? Thousands of years later, what are we using? Maybe our bank account. Maybe in your mind that shows you that God loves you more than others because he's given you more. Or that you're, you're more worthy, you're, you're wiser, right? You have more money than this other person, so therefore you must be wiser. You must have made better decisions. So that makes me worthy. Maybe it's your relationships, right? A good marriage means we're doing it right. A good relationship with my kids means I taught them well. I'm a good parent. I keep up with all my friends, and I, I even remember their birthdays. I call and text them on their birthdays. I'm a good friend. That's what makes me worthy. By the way, my birthday was April 26th, for all those of you who forgot. This is fine. Um, we have all sorts of ways of making ourselves feel worthy, even in the church. Well, I show up to all the events, not just some of them. I go to community group, too. I listen to the YouTube playlist that Pastor Randy worked so hard to post on Monday. I know, I know all the songs, right? I, I, my kids know the catechisms. On and on we could go. But Christian, the gospel, the gospel tells you this. It tells you this in Philippians chapter 2. This is also Paul writing to a different church. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Work. Work hard in your walk. Do everything in your power to live as becomes a follower of Christ. Endeavor. Why? That's the question. Why? Because that earns God's love? No. Because that makes you worthy or more worthy? No. Because God started something, but it's up to you to finish it. No. Here's why. You work hard in your walk for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'll just leave that there, otherwise it'll fall again. It is God who works in you. That's why you work. God works in you, increasing your knowledge, making you fruitful, working out His good pleasure in you so that you would be pleasing to Him, fully pleasing to Him. What does it mean to be fully pleasing? Paul tells us. That's why there's that colon in, chapter, in verse 10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, colon, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God.
So Christian, work hard in your walk. Work harder than you work at anything else in your life, but know, above all, it is God who works in you. He is the one who is above the darkness. And so as we cling to our hope, which is Jesus, and then in light of that hope, work out, work hard in your walk, because it is God who works in us, we also rejoice in our Redeemer who makes this all possible. Uh, We see our source of rejoicing in these last four verses. Go there with me. Verse 11. He writes now just four verses of straight gospel. Being strengthened with all power. You are strengthened with all power. Why? Because you work out? No. According to his glorious might. Where do you get the power to get up every morning and love others? Is it from your morning cup of coffee? Your inspirational quote of the day? No, it is the power of Jesus, the glorious might of God. How do we keep our faith in the midst of tragedy and trauma? We have the endurance and patience with joy. That, that is the power of God in you. That is what defeats the darkness. How is this possible, right? Well, it starts at the beginning, or maybe better yet, the new beginning. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, then you, then you have been born again. Now, maybe you are a covenant child, maybe you were lost and now you're found. But regardless, something happened. Something amazing happened that we should never grow bored of rehearsing. And so, with Paul, we give thanks. Verse 12 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, his church, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Those are just some of the best verses in all of Scripture. You are not qualified, Christian, You are not qualified, but the Father has qualified you. The only thing you and I are qualified for is the domain of darkness, the domain of Satan, the domain of sin and selfishness and greed. That is what we want left to ourselves. But God the Father, God the Father plucked you from from life you were living and has transferred you literally to a different kingdom. You are, you are not a citizen of this world anymore. How is that possible? What happened to our sin? What happened to our unworthiness? Well, our, our passage, I wanted to highlight this. Our passage starts and ends with a little phrase that's pretty easy to miss, but is so very important. Look at verse 2, and then we'll look at verse 14. Paul writes this entire letter, everything that comes, one through four, to the saints and faithful brothers. By the way, that word brothers includes sisters. If, if, you've, if you've ever studied like literally any other language, the word brothers usually includes the word sisters, especially if you know Spanish. And I say hermanos, that's not just like the boys in the room. That's brothers and sisters, my peeps, my peoples. So, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, in Christ, 
in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then in verse 14, it's a little more hidden, but it's the same thing. You have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption. How are you qualified? How could you possibly exist for more than a microsecond in the presence of a perfectly holy God in whom there is no sin? When you are filled with sin, how, how can you even exist in the presence of God? You are in Christ. How did Noah and his family survive the flood? They were in the ark. How did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego survive the furnace? They were in Christ. How can you be redeemed? How can you survive for more than a nanosecond in the kingdom of light, the kingdom in which there is no sin? When you are full of sin, you are in Christ. Just like it would be extremely difficult for you to snatch one of my children out of my hand because I would have a death grip on them. So your father, your older brother, Jesus Christ, has a death grip on you, a Kung Fu Bruce Lee Jackie Chan grip on you. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand, out of your out of his hands. Your status, your qualification, your future, your hope depends not on anything you've done or will do, but whether or not you are in Christ. So yes, you hold, you hold fast to your hope. You work hard in your walk, but that's only because you are rejoicing in your Redeemer, in Christ. Wherever you are physically, Colossae or Stuart, a democracy or a dictatorship, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And in that, we can all rejoice, though we too often forget. As we conclude here, I, I wanted to tell you uh, a quick story. Um, because the, the things around us, the things we see, the things we hear on the news, the things we read, they're, they're so often discouraging. They're meant to be. That's how they get you to keep coming back and make more money off of you. And it's so easy to lose sight of our focus, our goal. We've been transferred. We've been redeemed. We've been saved. We are free, but we don't always act like it. I'm, I'm reminded of some Civil War reading I did years back for a, for a paper. Um, and in the third year of the Civil War, um, Abraham Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation, which, in short, freed the slaves. He wrote in it, all persons, this is a direct quote, all persons held as slaves within any stated, within any state or designated part of a state, wherever you are, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. All slaves free. That's it, right? Done. But even after, years after the war was officially over, there were several reporters, and one asked a black man, a former slave, he asked him this question. What are your thoughts on Abraham Lincoln's proclamation to free all the slaves? The man responded, I don't know anything about Abraham Lincoln except that he set us free. And I don't know anything about that either. 
See, Christian, we too have been set free from a different kind of slavery, slavery to sin. We are free. We have been proclaimed and set free and delivered. The war has been fought. The war has been won. Christ Jesus is victorious in him. We are free. And yet, we too often live as if we are not. We too often live as if we are still slaves to sin and we just can't help it. We just can't help going back to that same sin. We just can't help seeking our own self-interest instead of the best interest of others. We just can't help lashing out in anger instead of exercising self-control. We just can't help it. And we use that language as if we were still slaves. But we have freedom, Christian. The Colossians found comfort in praying to angels and seeking wisdom from the gurus of their day, but we have something better. We have a hope in Christ Jesus that we can cling to, that we can work hard towards, and that we can rejoice in. He reminds us that though we are not worthy by ourselves, we have been deemed worthy, redeemed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And He reminds us that we have a wonderful, merciful Savior who alone can satisfy what our hearts always hunger for. Amen. Join us, join me as we give thanks.